0: Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller. This week's episode is about all the difficulties encountered by my mother when she became one of the first female pilots in the United States Air Force. Me too, Mom. At the beginning of World War II, while working as a switchboard operator in an industrial bakery in Buffalo, my mom, Betty Lefebvre, saw a posting on the company bulletin board announcing a search for women to volunteer for a new branch of the Army Air Force. The Women's Air Force Service Pilots, also known as WASPs, were being created because there was a severe shortage of male fighter pilots, many of whom had been killed in action. If selected, these women would take an intensive course in both piloting aircraft and also learn to teach male trainees to fly. Then they would be qualified to take over the job of training new pilots, thus freeing up the existing male flight instructors to fight in Europe. Just before she applied for the WASPs, my mom got married and a photograph of her and my dad was featured in the Buffalo Gazette. They were using part of their combined income to buy war bonds. In the feature photograph, he looked smart in his crisp new army uniform, and she was dressed in the fashion of the day, a printed silk summer dress. They were a handsome couple doing the right thing to help in the war effort. My mom only had a high school education, but she was what they called back then a can-do girl with plenty of self-confidence. She was also a savvy test taker and possessed the requisite manual dexterity to fly a plane, It was no surprise that she decided to take up the challenge of joining the first batch of female pilots. Only one in 10 applicants were chosen, and sure enough, she was one of them. Within a few weeks, she was headed to an Air Force base in Sweetwater, Texas, where she learned to fly. wasps received classroom instruction and flight training seven days a week until they were qualified pilots. It was a pretty heady trip for her and her classmates because by the end of their short training period they were considered to be officers and had to be saluted by enlisted men. I remember when I was listening as a young boy, her telling friends and family how she felt the first time a couple of men had to snap to attention and salute as she walked by. While this all sounds very egalitarian, in fact, these fly gals were treated with anything but respect. If in 2020 the Army and Air Force are still coping unsuccessfully with the harassment of women in the ranks, imagine how things were back in 1939. Hazing of all sorts took place. The spectrum ran from whistles, catcalls, and stolen bras and panties to unwanted touching, grabbing, fondling, and sometimes much worse. This was often the norm in the civilian workplace back then as well. I can only speculate as to why these women rarely complained. But perhaps, on one side, it was because of their patriotism and sense of duty in wanting to assist in the war effort, and on the other, the reality that there was really no official way to file a complaint. Not to mention the fear of retribution for speaking out. Whatever the case, these female pilots endured a lot. Upon graduation from the training program, my mom started as a flight instructor in Sweetwater, and it wasn't long before she had to endure her first Men Will Be Men experience, and it was a dangerous one. She was giving a final flight test to a prospective male pilot in an AT-6 training aircraft. The plane seated two people, one behind the other, trainee in front and trainer behind, both under a clear domed canopy. There were twin controls as well. For the instrument flying part of the test, also known as flying blind, a curtain was pulled to obscure the vision of the trainee, who had to then pilot the plane using only the instrument panel in front of him. Once the instrument flying concluded and the curtain was opened so that the trainee could see again, he decided to show off by diving the plane close to the flight tower. He ignored my mom's direct order to desist, and in the process of fighting for control of the plane, they hit some of the equipment on top of the tower, damaging the landing gear so severely that it would not deploy. The airfield fire department had to foam the runway, and luckily she was able to belly in the AT-6 without anybody getting hurt. But the plane was a total loss. During the subsequent court-martial, which was big news on the base, she had to testify against the would-be pilot, who soon ended up as a would-be convict sentenced to a year in military prison. She experienced every sort of abuse surrounding her role in the affair and even received some anonymous threats. As a result of the trial and its aftermath, she was transferred off base and reassigned to being the personal pilot for an Army Air Force general. My mom was a good-looking young woman and was probably hand-picked for the job by the general. I'm sure her sexual appeal interested him a lot more and the fact that she was an excellent pilot. I suspect that she had an ugly experience with him too, because it wasn't long before she was again reassigned. In the 32 years that I knew my mom, she was never one to put up with abuse, and I'm sure that because of this, she was considered to be a difficult woman by the Air Force officers to whom she reported. Her next assignment was to ferry airplanes around the country. One story from this period that she told many times over her life was completely emblematic of her whole experience in the WASPs. The first assignment in her new job was to fly a P-38 from Detroit, where the plane was manufactured, to Atlanta, where it was going to be deployed. The P-38 was at the time the biggest, fastest fighter bomber in the world. It was a huge plane with twin fuselages connected by a wing that crossed between them and then extended outward in both directions. The pilot sat in a cockpit pod in the midsection of the wing. Because it was the newest thing and held great promise for the war effort, the plane was the object of great fascination wherever it was flown. In those days, when landing a plane in good weather, the protocol was for the pilot to circle the tower once to make visual contact and then call in for landing instructions. After my mom finished circling the tower and called in for landing instructions, the response from the flight tower controller came crackling over the radio. Get off the air, lady. We're trying to bring in a P-38. To which she got to respond, I am the P-38. Knowing her as I did, I'm sure she wanted to say, I am the P-38, you asshole. But she never used profanity. Years later, Whenever she told this story in front of my father and I, he would always say, with mild disdain, Your mother never flew a P 38 in her wildest dreams. No way. At the end of the war, when she was being discharged from the Air Force, with my dad still serving in France, she was offered a job to be the world's first female flight controller at LaGuardia Airport in New York. In a telegram, my father ordered her to refuse the job and return to Buffalo and wait for him, which she did. She never really forgave him for this and kept the telegram till the end of her days. After the war was over, both my parents returned home to civilian life. When I was born, along with a whole generation of other baby boomers, my dad took a job with AT&T, starting as a pole climber. He quickly rose through the ranks and was transferred to Albany, New York, where the family moved when I was a toddler. Since my mother didn't know anybody in her new town, and my father was working long hours at his new job, she and I spent most of our waking hours together. She loved to teach, and so when we gardened or drove around together or went grocery shopping, there were always lessons. I can barely remember now, but when I was three, we pulled up in front of a grocery store in our new Studebaker, and she gave me some money and sent me in to buy a loaf of bread, explaining how much change I should get back. I didn't want to go, but she insisted, refusing to continue driving until I complied. After a few such missions, I began to enjoy all the attention I got from the in-store audience. Our best experiences were the times when we flew around together. I felt very proud to have such a special mom who was a pilot. My parents owned a small plane called the Piper Cub, and she and I would fly all over upstate New York together. Some of my earliest and fondest memories were about looking down over the aerial landscape from the back window of their plane. She loved pointing out how slowly the cars below appeared to move, the different kinds of clouds in the sky that we both loved flying through, particularly the little puffy, fair-weather ones that we could wish through in the blink of an eye. She also never tired of pointing out the intricacies and beauty of the natural terrain below, meandering rivers and streams, wave patterns on lakes, and the green patchwork of the farm fields of upstate New York. I have other memories from this period that are not so pleasant, though like all the whistles and calls that could be heard while we walked on the tarmac out to the plain. I remember being aware of all the attention we received, both in the hangar and outside. I would look at the men, puzzled by their laughter and whistles, and wondering what this was all about. Once there were some mechanics hanging out in a group in the hangar, and as we walked by, one of them asked me, Do you love your mother? When I shyly responded that I did, he continued, I'll bet you do. I'd love to love your mother, too and the whole group broke out in laughter. My mother pulled me away and we continued on. I had no understanding of what was going on and was confused by my mother's anger. When I questioned her about these things, though, she was never in the mood to talk, which left me feeling even more confused. About this time, I did have a real chance to protect her, though, which she never forgot. My whole family had taken a cottage on Burden Lake which is about 10 miles east of Albany. My parents became part of a whole gang of young couples who hung out together day and night. They were all veterans of the war in one way or another and all happy to party the summer away, putting their deep-seated feelings about the horrors of the war behind them. There was lots of drinking and smoking, dancing, water sports, along with endless pranks and horsing around, while the pack of us kids ran wild amongst the adult action. The center of the daytime activities was a little beach that spread out on either side of a dock near our cottage. One day a couple of my dad's drunk friends decided to grab my mother and throw her in the lake. As she struggled to keep them from picking her up, she screamed wildly and I sprung into action. Back then, kids' toys were made out of metal, not plastic, and I always had my metal sand bucket and little shovel with me at the beach. Horrified by what I saw, I ran up and hit the nearest man with my sharp little shovel. Slicing into his leg. His profuse bleeding put an immediate end to their horseplay, and a summer legend was born. Don't mess with Betty Lefebvre, or her little man will do you in. During our time at the lake, my mom and I still flew around together. When we took off or landed, The snide remark still rankled both of us. We also had many more positive bonding experiences. In my early teens, with her encouragement, I started taking aerial photographs with my little Kodak Brownie box camera that she had given me for a birthday present. She was very enthusiastic about our photography flights and about the photos that I took. Her eye for interesting configurations in the landscape helped train my eye. My mom had a full-time job as wife and mother, raising three kids with precious little help from my absent dad. But even so, she got her real estate license and started working part-time in an all-male firm. If anyone brought a home from her, she became a family friend and long-term resource that would recommend babysitters, beauty salons, doctors, and the like, and even help out the woman of the house if she was sick. Through her hard work and real concern for her clients as people, she made more home sales working part-time than all of her male co-workers did working full-time. She shared with me once how saddened she was to hear that some of the men in her office had a simple explanation for her success. She was, of course, sleeping with clients to make sales. My mom had a lifetime of dealing with difficult men, not the least of which was my father. While I saw firsthand, as a kid, many of the things she went through, I never realized what a toll it took on her. Once I left home for good, it became obvious over the years, in our frequent telephone conversations, that she was severely depressed. I always did the best I could to buoy her spirits, but my encouraging words never helped for very long. Around the time that she turned 60, I sent her a copy of the Penguin edition of Vincent van Gogh's Letters, i just finished them and wanted to share with her how moved I was by Theo's support and encouragement for his brother Vincent, which reminded me of my mom's lifelong support for me as an artist. I didn't take into consideration, however, how depressing she might find the letters. She called one day a few weeks later and asked, Why don't I fly over to Boston and pick you up and we can fly to Block Island for the weekend? I have a girlfriend who's offered me a house there. Ah, oh, ma, I'd love to, but I can't. I'm like totally behind finishing up this grant proposal. We chatted a little longer, and she seemed sad and then hung up, but I didn't think much about it. That was the last time I ever spoke with her. She ended her life a few days after that call. Her suicide note, in an envelope addressed to me, was propped up against Van Gogh's letters, which sat on top of her bedroom dresser. That was the saddest day of my life. As a sculptor who makes bronze reliefs, it was natural that I should create an artful bronze plaque for her grave. I envisioned it featuring an image of a small plane and a few lines about her enthusiasm for flying and for life. Every time I entered my studio to work on the plaque, however, I would get a big lump in my throat, feel totally depressed, and be completely unable to continue. This inability to complete the work went on for weeks and months and ultimately years. She lay in an unmarked grave for three years while I felt incredibly guilty and struggled to complete the project. Finally, I got some professional help to overcome this block, and in one session, my therapist made an observation that changed everything. He gently suggested, Maybe the plaque for her grave is the last thing you can do for your mom, so you're taking your time. Somehow, the dark clouds lifted, and I was able to finish the project. The bronze plaque that I created features a relief carving of the AT-6 that she was so fond of, and reads, Betty Lefevre, 1917-1977, to a woman of great energy and enthusiasm, and a fine pilot. She is buried in a cemetery near Utica, in upstate New York. The cemetery has no headstones, only bronze plaques set at ground level in the grass. Her grave is located at the top of a hill close to a couple of tall Italian cypress trees with a beautiful view of the rural landscape that she loved so much and lots of sky above. The Compulsive Storyteller is produced by Peter Kokoma and me, Reg Lefebvre. This week's episode featured an original score by Peter Kokoma, who made our theme music as well. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love your help sharing the show. Please subscribe to The Compulsive Storyteller on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, and it would be great if you could leave a review. Follow the show on Instagram at The Compulsive Storyteller and check out our website for more information at TheCompulsiveStoryteller.com. Thanks for listening. And if you don't like this one, the next one will be another story.